Abhijit Mahabal, welcome to the Free Tanker podcast. Thank you for having me here. Uh, you have a PhD in cognitive science from Indiana University and you worked for 11 years as a researcher at Google. Uh, and now you've just uh, gone to another job assignment, but you've been working on natural language understanding, artificial intelligence and natural language, That's right? That's right, yeah. First of all, I'd like to ask you, has there been... Um, I mean, I studied uh, artificial intelligence back in the late 80s, and uh, uh, we had a lot of ideas of how fast this would happen, and then it didn't happen. So we, people talk about the AI winter coming. Mm-hmm. Has there been a, a big change the last 10 years, do you think? Uh, there has been a lot of progress in several things, but at the same time, a lot more people are awakening to the possibility that things are way slower than what people had expected. Still. There's a large, the the number of people who are now chiming in again and saying things are not as rosy as many people paint them to be, that number is definitely growing. Uh And even people who have been projecting that we are, how far away self-driving cars are is getting pushed back further and further. It's true that many people like Elon Musk would like us to believe that we are pretty much there, but no, things are pretty far away. Okay. Why why are we overestimating the speed that this will happen all the time? There are many people who have never overestimated this. There have been naysayers for a long time. <laughs> like okay. the person I work with, Douglas Schoftader, has been saying for a long time that self-driving is extremely hard. And he can give several examples of creativity required in driving. So if you're driving along a road, you see that the road is closed. There are plenty of things you have to do there. You have to figure it out. If it's snowing or there, there are things that you have to vary. But this notion that people get excited about something and start believing that something is easier has been around forever. It's not a new phenomenon. What has been happening was as the computer power has been increasing, now that we have CPUs giving way to GPUs and you can have millions of computers to run things on, there have been some problems that we have been improving on rapidly. And people, it was easy for people to believe that this can just go on to other problems. But other problem might be fundamentally different and maybe it's not raw computational power that's needed, perhaps something else is needed there. Yeah. I see what you mean. On your spe- specific field, natural language understanding, what are the the big obstacles there? What are the big problems that needs to be solved before it can work in a rather a sufficient way, would you say? Uh, it depends on what you mean by sufficient way, what you need to get there. In many ways, the sort of things we do are already useful. So think of something like Google. Mm-hmm. When you make a query to Google search engine, there are many things that can understand from what you're saying. So if you take some simple word like GM, then it does, if you say something like GM of Coca-Cola, it knows you're talking of general manager. Mm-hmm. On the other end, you say GM wheat, it knows you're talking of genetically modified wheat. Mm-hmm. So there's some some sorts of understanding that it already has, but of course it has no clue what genetically modified means. So if you have, want to have a conversation with it about genetically modified, it's completely hopeless. Mm. And... Uh, Things that make it hard is that language is complicated. The same word can be used in hundreds of different ways. Here's a simple example. Take a word as simple as the word man. So what does it mean? Does it mean half of humanity or the full humanity? Mm -hmm. 
So if you have a men's basketball team, that's half of humanity that's mm-hmm. represented there. But if you think of something like uh, what uh, Neil Armstrong said when he landed on the moon, it was one small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Mm. So that mankind is probably including womankind also there. Yes. So even a word as simple as that can be very hard in a way. Yeah, yeah. And what what are the technical strategies for for coping with that problem? There are a few strategies. Uh, one of the ones that's typically used is trying to represent words as points in vector spaces, but doing it in a way where the surrounding words influence things. That gets you part of the way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is noticing that words can behave very that that similar words behave similarly if you look at the surrounding words in sentences. So if you look at, let's say, just if you take a president of the United States and a president in a different country, you can see that they're very similar because you see sentences like this person signed a bill or this person opposed something or this person vetoed something. So if you see sentences, there's a lot of commonality. And you can latch on to this commonality to realize similar structures and you can build on this to become to create larger and larger structures. So that could be one pathway which some people are trying. Okay, I see, I see. Um, what, what, what would you say about um, the fears that more and more often are expressed now around big companies like Google and Facebook and uh, the control of data that they have in, in a way? What do you think about that? In a way, it's a real fear. I don't think it's very much a fear in some of these companies of using that data to do something bad themselves because there are typically many checks and balances in place to prevent, let's say, employees from doing anything with it. My bigger worry is that some of these things can be leaked and if it's hacked, then that could be a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. That That's what I worry about more than these companies themselves misusing it, although in theory, something like that could happen. Do you think we need some kind of legal uh, splitting up these companies from a legal perspective? I don't know. I, I, I don't have very much of an opinion there. I don't know how that would work because each company would still have a lot of data. So if if the hope here is that by splitting it into various companies, each company would have a piece of data and not enough to join things together, that's fine. But on the other hand, many of the services that people have come to expect, can these companies can actually provide value by having all those pieces of data together. Meaning, let's say you go on YouTube and you are on Google search, perhaps being able to help you find what you're looking for more easily can be done better. If you separate them, that could also become harder. Some things would become worse, some other things might be easier then. I see what you mean, yeah. Um, when it comes to when it comes to um, uh, the the notion of consciousness in artificial intelligence, that's a very popular thing to speculate about now. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Will we have conscious machines? I suspect we will have consciousness conscious machines, but I don't see that we are anywhere close to it. I don't expect it to happen in the next fifty years, frankly. And I have no idea what it would look like once we get closer to it. Do you think we will be aware when it happens? 
Will we understand it when it happens? There probably will not be one particular point at which we say before this it was not conscious and after this it's conscious. Probably there are tiny degrees of consciousness. Uh, but it's, it's a hard thing to speculate. I, what, what I can say is that machines would definitely get more and more intelligent over time. Mm. I think I'll be sticking out my neck a lot more to say anything about consciousness here. Intelligence... I'm far more optimistic about in mm. the next 50 years still. And how do, what do you mean by intelligence then? For me, intelligence is being able to do a very large variety of things, to be able to take skills in one domain and be able to apply them to a completely different domain, but far more importantly, being able to reformulate a problem in a way that can be solved. So in some sense, if you see the activity of scientists... Some, someone big like Kepler, the greatest thing wasn't that they figured out what the law connecting planet motion to everything was. Mm-hmm. I think their contribution was figuring out that there exists a law connecting those two and then mm-hmm. finding it. Once you have the data, even a simple program can connect it and find the equation. But looking for the equation was the creative thing there, I think. Yeah. I, I see what you mean. Um Tell me about your new job assignment. What are you working on now after 11 years for Google? I just moved to Pinterest, and Pinterest is a company in the United States that where one can organize their collection of images. There is a lot of natural language involved there also because mm-hmm. people would like to group things in various ways. So uh, a large fraction of people there are interested in things like, let's say, cooking or fashion and so forth. And so many of the words used there are related to these things. Being able to organize them and understand the structure of what's happening so that we can suggest nearby things appropriately would be a good thing. Mm. Okay, so you will continue to work on natural language understanding in that context. I continue to work on natural language understanding there, Mm, yes. I see. How big is that company? How many employees? Uh, I think there are about 600 or 700 engineers roughly. Okay, is it owned by any of the big giants? No, no. Uh, it, it's a separate company and it just had its uh, initial public offering last month. Uh-huh. So it just went public. Aha, uh-huh. okay, interesting. So you came in in a good... I came in at a good time. ...moment. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, your background is from India. That's right. Um uh, how how young were you when you sort of realized that you wanted to work with things like this? Very young, I would say. I know for a fact that by the age that I was in ninth grade, I had uh, read my would-be advisor's book. I was exposed to Gerdlesher Bach, and I found it fascinating. And how old were you then? Uh, would I have been sixteen or so. Yeah, you read you read Gerdlesher Bach. That's right. Of Douglas Hofstadt. Right. And I got very excited. And the next year I went and found a more recent book of his called Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies. Yeah. Which incidentally was the first book ever sold on Amazon.com. Really? So for one minute at least he must have been the number one best-selling author (laughs) on the site. That's very interesting to hear. Okay. Was it the first book sold? That's right. I would not have guessed that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I see. And at that point, then I wrote to him saying, uh, this is a field I'd be interested in working. And it took me another 10 years, finally, or eight years or so to get to Indiana University and start working with him. Mm -hmm. And getting there, I I was 
completely happy with seeing this. But my getting interested in cognition had a very different sort of route. When I was in high school, there was a weird challenge in front of me, which was almost a life and death situation in my perspective at that time. So I was part of the, I, I, I was training to be part of the team for the Indian, for the International Mathematics Olympiad. So I wanted to be one of the six people representing India. And for that, there is an exam with 20 questions, five are combinatorics, five number theory, five algebra, and five geometry. I got nearly all of the algebra number theory and combinatorics right, but I got a perfect zero in geometry. <laughs> and so the question was, I seem to be reasonable at math, but I cannot do geometry. So I started paying a lot more attention to my own thinking about geometry. Mm -hmm. Somehow I squeezed through the team, but next year I had one year to prepare again for the second Olympiad, and I focused heavily on trying to understand geometry, but I repeated the same feat in the training test with a perfect zero in geometry. And so that intense year of watching myself think was, I think, very central to my getting interested in cognition. I see. But uh, you must still tell me, how, how did an Indian boy, 16 years old, uh, get hold of Gödel Escherbach? Uh, one of the people I used to know, I was part of an organization which was a science popularization organization. Mm -hmm. uh, this person, my mentor, Vivek Wag, ran it, and there were several people interested in astrophysics there. Mm -hmm. One of the people there was his brother, Sanjay Wag, who unfortunately passed away last week. Uh -huh. And he was an astrophysicist who had worked at some of the top places in India and South Africa. Yeah. And he was the one who gave a copy to me. Yeah, okay. And, uh, but uh, you still lived with your, with your parents at that time? I still lived with my parents at that time. <clears throat> and what did they work with? My dad worked in insurance at that point. So that made him change uh, cities every three years or so. And so we moved to several places in India. My, uh, my mother was a housemaker. Okay. He's a housemaker. He's a housemaker. Okay, I see. Um, I, I, I can't uh, help thinking of this movie about Srinivasa Ramanujan. Have you seen that film? I have seen that film recently, yes. The Man Who Knew Infinity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very fascinating film and a true story, as you, as you know. He came to Cambridge, I think, in the 1920s, right? That's right. Uh, a mathematical genius who was self-taught in mathematics. Right. Um, but I, as I understand it, you studied mathematics in school and so I on. I studied math in school. Yeah, right. so you were not self-taught in that sense. No. No. <clears throat> uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about India today. Uh, do you go back to India, anything? Uh, roughly every year or so. Yeah. What do you think about the, the sort of development political situation in India right now? I'm fairly divided on what's going on there. In some ways, what's happening with Modi, some really good things are happening. So one of the big problems in India has been corruption throughout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of new things that are happening are making things transparent and much harder to have corruption. Mm -hmm. At the same time... I also feel that Modi is giving a little bit of a free rein to Hindu fundamentalists. So in that sense, I think the country is lining backwards. So 
there's some really good things happening and some bad things happening. So I don't quite know what to feel about it. But is it's, uh, Narendra Modi himself a Hindu nationalist person? I don't think so. I, mm-hmm. I don't think he's doing anything directly. It's just that he's not stopping the other elements of him fr- of his party from doing not good things. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. And what is the goal of the Hindu nationalists in India? What do they want? It's... I, I don't think that goal is any different from any sorts of grouping behavior that you see anywhere else in the world. Mm. Almost anywhere else, everywhere you see this notion of us versus them. Yeah. And it's just a bit of that there. And there has been uh, Hindu-Muslim tension forever yeah. in that part of the wor- world. And I, I, I think most Indians don't buy into that. But the fraction of Indians that do can be very vociferous. And again, that in that sense, India is no different from anywhere else in the world. I see what you mean. But uh, I know that you said to me the other day that uh, the caste system, even if it is not a legal system anymore, it is very strongly there anyway. Right. Is that right? How, how is it upheld? I think it's upheld by the people themselves. So... Even now, a large fraction of marriages still happen within caste. When people are looking for someone else to marry with, parental consent is still a big role in how marriages occur, and that is often in the same caste. So I think in many of those ways, things are present. Another component that does happen is uh, there's this notion of reservation in India where about 50% of jobs are restricted to certain classes, and... I think it's important that these classes be uplifted and there's a a notion of fairness there. But I think that may exacerbate the caste problem rather than decrease it in its own way. So bad consequences of potentially good actions. Yeah, I I see what what you mean. Um, Are are you... you, Another thing about this I want to ask you. Um, Astrology is very big in India. It is. It's even becoming a... University subject, right? I believe in some places you can have that, yes. Um, Why is that? I mean, why is that considered a science? I don't know if it's considered... Okay, so a a large number of misbeliefs, I think. I'm very interested in this whole notion of how people come to believe something. Mm -hmm. And people can have very strong opinions of things. I recently read a very fascinating book called uh, Mistakes Were Made. I'm blanking on the name of the two authors there. They put forth a theory of how cognitive dissonance makes us keep ideas that we have and makes it very hard for us to get out of it. Mm. Now, for something like uh, astrology, what people see is sometimes they see positive examples of it. By positive examples... One means they, uh, they interpret something as being caused by the stars. So you see examples for one side, for everything else you discount it. So there's, there's a statistical error there. Mm-hmm. And I think not understanding statistics and not understanding mathematics leads us to conclusions like this. I see what you mean. So the, the way to treat it is, uh, is um, more science studies, statistics, mathematics. It's unclear to me whether science studies would move the needle. I have no idea what would move it because once people have solid beliefs about something, 
data does not typically change things no and it, it's also true in science it's it's not as if science is immune from beliefs that are not changed no. people start believing so famously many physicists believe in one particular things and never moved over to the other view just because there was data no the 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 paradigms shift when the old school dies and new right. people <laughs> that's the argument <laughs> that's the argument yeah exactly Okay, so uh, just a final question. What um, if you were to change your scientific research area from what you're doing today? What would you choose then, if you could choose freely? That's a great question. I don't know. I, uh, what I've been doing, I've been doing the same thing for a couple of decades, and I see myself doing for at least four or five more decades. Yes. If I'm still around, then uh, I don't think I will change anything actually. You love I, to do what you're doing. I love to do what I do. I I might try to understand how the brain works a little bit more, maybe invest some more energy there, but this notion of chasing how cognition works, I think I see myself doing that forever. <laughs> I'm not going to solve it. It's a big problem. <laughs> It's a big problem. Okay, thank you Abhi Abhijit, is that correct? Abhijit. Abhijit yes. Mahabal. Thank you for coming to Fritanka Spot. Thank you for having me.